0: welcome to the adventure audio podcast this is part two with alex hutchinson if you haven't listened to part one definitely go back one episode listen to that before diving into this one it really is one conversation uh finishing up in episode one and leading right into this one one of the most fascinating conversations i've had in a very long time another big thank you to alex for carving out the time to speak with us thank you everybody for tuning in This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company, who you can visit at statebicycle.com. State's been supporting the pod for a long time. We love State, they're awesome. The best way to follow along with what State is doing and what they've got going on is to give them a quick follow on social media. So it's State Bicycle Co. And they've got all kinds of new stuff coming out. They're constantly doing like limited editions and collaborations and stuff that is uh, maybe more seasonal. So you definitely wanna give them a follow and know what they're up to. And they've recently released a road frame that looks absolutely amazing. Uh, that is carbon fiber. So that's new for state. So check them out. You can also use code audio 100, which will give you a hundred bucks off a bicycle and they have bikes starting at three ninety nine. dollars So that is a significant discount. So it's statebicycle.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Dewar Apparel. That's duerdue D-U-E-R.ca, is where you can visit Dewar. Uh, they are a Canadian brand, very keenly interested in sustainability, and they have some of the most awesome looking and comfortable clothing that I have ever seen. It's like a performance apparel um, with a little bit of a uh, dressy spin on it. It's awesome. They have stores in Calgary and Vancouver and you can visit them at doer.ca. Very, very pleased to be working with them and the team there. And lastly, the podcast is brought to you by 4i Technologies. That's the number four and then the letter I four times .com. So 4i.com is where you can visit them and 4i if you don't know them are a major brand in cycling and uh they are involved in the world tour they create power meters heart rate monitors all kinds of very very cool tech they're located close by to our hometown of calgary alberta in cochrane and uh so pleased to be working with 4i we've mentioned this before uh very very stoked we're going to bring you more information about 4i we're going to have some cool product giveaways power meters so stay tuned very pleased to be working with these organizations and uh, and having them support the podcast lastly thank you everybody for listening if you're able to give us a positive rating or review on whatever podcast platform you're finding the show we greatly appreciate that help that helps us find new listeners and it's really the best way for a podcast to grow positive ratings and reviews and uh, just word of mouth so thank you again for tuning in and we'll see you next week you know it's it's really interesting. I think like there's no question that we're the best endurance athletes on the planet as an animal. And we're really actually pretty bad at a lot of other things. If you measure them compared to other animals that can jump or run, we're, we're not very fast. We're not, we're really not very good at a whole bunch of stuff, but we're really, really good at endurance. And that seems to be innate. I think in a lot mm-hmm. of modern culture, we lose touch with a lot of that just because of conveniences and the way that we've constructed lifestyles and you know some people really push back against that and try and be more in touch with that. but i do do you think that that is sort of an innate thing and do you think that people really get is there is there something some sort of some sort of satisfaction that we get at sort of a deeper more subconscious level by doing these things
1: yeah it's it's I mean, it's a good question. I, so sometimes the way people are trying to answer this question is is to talk about like Brain chemistry, uh, endorphins, endocannabinoids oh, the, the sort of these things that are connected to the runner's high kind of idea—that um, because of because of our history as as persistent persistence hunters, we're just wired to kind of enjoy this movement. I, I get that, and I think that's part of a re- part of the reason, probably, that I still run pretty much every day. You know, as I like the way. It, makes me feel i'm not sure it's enough to explain it i I feel like there's there's something more and i i really struggle to put my finger on what it is that i mean yeah i mean what what else are we you know we're wired to eat and sleep and we we do that but like i I eat because i'm hungry not because i have you know millions of years of evolution telling me i should eat so what is it what and and the other thing so when you think about other sort of basic drives everybody eats and sleeps but in modern society when we're given the choice not to push our limits you know in a physical way or even in a mental way a lot of people choose to you know accept that offer right the majority um, yeah i mean i guess i don't know let, let let let's say let's say someone developed a pill that would give you all the nutrients you need and all you have to do is swallow a pill once a day and you don't eat anymore how many of us would choose to just take that pill Versus still to pursue the pleasure of, the pleasure not just of eating but of being hungry and then satisfying that hunger, and so I don't know if maybe that's an analogy to think about like, if something's so basic, why are we why as a society are we so bad, at at following the the dictates of that need? So so the the evolutionary arguments are hard because they don't explain why so many of us don't. So then the question is what is the difference between people who try to climb either the literal Everest or their sort of metaphorical equivalents and people who are like no I'm good you know I'm just gonna I'm gonna stay here on the couch and you know maybe maybe if we answer that question we can we can help people make different choices I, I don't know but it, it's 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 a harder question than I than I thought to answer when I started thinking about it
0: yeah no that's fair I mean it's it's baffling because there's people who don't need to do it there's people who think that, that maybe it's a way to a better life right like you're like the kenyans but laval has no reason to be up that mountain really no there's no practical reason yet he can't stop thinking about it planning it preparing for it and there's there's lots of people like laval out there percentage wise there isn't but but there, there, we're all over the world and it's interesting that different cultures have developed uh, even before they interacted with one another, developed these types of challenges. So it's happened all over the world, but they've developed in different ways. But you can see that it is innate, and it's not necessarily cultural.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. It's it's and and again, even obviously Lavelle and, and and you too, Peter, are at the very extreme ends of the 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 distribution. But there, you know, if you if you broaden that to say you know, people who choose to try and complete a marathon or something like that. It's There's a lot of people. Like, it, it, this is not just some sort of random, uh, you know, freak mutation, with no offense to you guys intended. Um, <laughs> it, it's it, taken. It, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's out there, but it's not universal because there's even more people who who don't. And so, I don't know, for, for the, the three of us speaking from within our bubble, let's say, we, and probably everyone listening to this podcast is like, don't those people realize how much happier they'd be, how great it would be if they set themselves a hard goal that that they really had to struggle with and that they didn't know if they could achieve and that would push them physically and mentally and emotionally? Don't they know how great it would be? but i I, mean, I don't know, we're in our bubble maybe because because there there's there's someone else in another podcast somewhere as, as we speak saying, like what is wrong with those people? Why do they go up mountains? Why do they run marathons like what is missing from their lives that forces them to to, to keep wandering in the in the desert like this?
2: And I think I think our society now is just so interested in comfort and and avoiding discomfort, and everything that is designed now. Every car has a remote car starter. So oh, don't you dare walk outside at minus ten and start your car. That would just be too difficult. So they let it run for the time to fifteen minutes and it shuts down. They do it again and again and again. So. On a bunch of different levels that's just so wrong from environmental reasons to to getting out and moving um i'm a cycle commuter i write to to work every day when i when i fly in a 365 days a year or so year round and people are like oh how do you do that and you just have to have the right clothing and just like you though i cannot really put my finger on what the reward is i mean obviously it keeps me fit and it it, it I don't know why it makes me feel good, but it makes me feel good because it's a challenge in my day. It's a it's a little snippet of my day that that if my day is just sort of an average day, I've at least gotten in those couple of bike rides or that bike ride. And it's so difficult to justify, or maybe not justify, but to adequately explain. Sometimes you do things just for the sake of doing
1: them. Yeah. it's And I, I agree. Like, as you said, it's hard to, it's hard to explain that it's not, of, of course, it's great to keep fit and, you know, be an active commuter, but that's not enough to explain. And the same with me, like I go for my run and yeah, of course I want to be fit and healthy and blah, blah, blah. But that's, that's not really why I'm doing it. And it's hard. I mean, just thinking of like the the, the comfort and the choices, you know, my kids right now, I have kids who are nine and seven and so there's a lot of things that, of course, I'm trying to, you know, instill in them in a, in an indirect way. But just thinking about even as, as simple a challenge as as eating healthily and stuff, and you know, there's a million different arguments you can you can give a kid for why they should eat their broccoli. Um, but fundamentally, the one that I I tend to fall back on is like, look. You don't have to like it. I'm not asking you to like broccoli. Just eat it. In life, if you can get in, <laughs> in into your head the idea that sometimes you should do things even though they're uncomfortable, and you'll be glad you did, then it's going to go way beyond broccoli. It's going to be so useful for you if you're not if you don't have the mindset that everything you do should be pleasurable, because that traps you into a very narrow range of options. You can only do. A, very few things if, if you want everything to feel good. But if you're just like, sometimes I'm going to decide that I want to do this. And if it feels like crap, because they're, they, you know, they're always obsessed with like, Daddy, what foods do you not like? And I've told them, well, you know, I don't particularly like eggplant. And so last night we had a vegetarian lasagna with eggplant. And they're like, oh, Daddy, we're having the food that you don't like. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but it makes no difference to me. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it. I'm actually going to enjoy this lasagna. I don't love eggplant, but I don't mind doing things that that make me uncomfortable sometimes. It's fine. It's, it's good for me to eat the eggplant now and then, because then I'm going to enjoy my cheese later. Uh, it, you know, So anyway, that's, <laughs> I guess I'm- You sound like you've been
0: people. around my table though. That's what it sounds
2: like. <laughs> yeah, so, well, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm glad that I'm
0: not the only one. No, that is that is it. It's We have the same, a very, very similar conversation about, look, sometimes it's your favorite meal. Sometimes it's your least favorite. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. And that's a metaphor for life, right? It's just, that's how it's going to be. I think the fact that your wife it's is cooking eggplant like lasagna
2: says more about. I think it says more about your relationship with your wife, Alex. If she cooked it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I give her credit because I we've been saying why do I go running every day? Why do I go running every day? Okay, well, if you if you dig deep enough, it's like because my wife goes running every day, and I have to train pretty hard if I want to be able to keep up with. Her, oh, so that's good. I, you know, that's so, so good. It's, it's uh, so you it's, can it's
2: endure. You can endure the cycle. lasagna. Yeah.
1: So, are are you like Daniel? Delicious, just in case she ever listens.
2: Yeah, just for the record, are you like? Have you read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow? So, so, so he talks about the fact that he literally wrote the book on decision making, but that writing the book on decision making has not made him a better, as George Bush Jr. said, decider. So in your in your education as a as a, a uh, we're going to call you an endurance specialist has it made you uh, if you would have known what you know today in in May of 2023 that um, back in your McGill days would you have been far better
1: so i uh, let me answer that on a couple of levels first of all I'll I will say i am in the Kahneman school i very much You know, I read his book, and boy, it was a bit of a doorstop. But um, I appreciated his that he wasn't trying to sell us his seven-step plan for avoiding cognitive biases. And he's like, "Yeah, you know, like this is is how your brain works. I'm not telling you how to fix it. I'm just telling you this is this is the way it works. And Mm -hmm. even knowing about it, it gives you a little bit of defense. You can sort of see these things. Maybe you can." anticipate the sorts of cognitive biases you'll be subject to and try and put yourself in position put, not try not to put yourself in positions where your decision making will be handicapped by those biases and I, I feel kind of the same way about um, you know I wrote this whole book on how our brain defines our limits and so the obvious question is like okay, so how do we tell our brain not to impose these limits so we can go farther and and the answers are not easy. Now if the question is, did writing the book or looking at all this research, you know, change my performance? You know, in the present, not, not not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. I you know I I now I know why I'm a coward in the third quarter of every race, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily allow me to turn it off. If I had a time machine, would it have made me a better runner in the '90s? In that case, I think the answer is probably yes. But the the, the point the point is that to To take advantage of the insights, to to say, let's and and let's say the simplest thing I could have done with the time, you know, if I had that time machine message, is to be like, you know, young Alex, get to a good sports psychologist, uh, stop snickering, do the things they say, invest in it, like believe in it, work on things like uh, your internal monologue, like motivational self talk, things like that, mindfulness. I think that stuff can make a difference. I really do. And I think someone like Elliot Kipchoge, the the marathon world record holder, I think one of his secrets is not that his VO two max is super high or anything. It's actually not. I, I, his is probably not all that different than mine, from what I understand, just on in off track conversations. Uh, he has he has other physical gifts, but he also has mental gifts. And you know he he is supremely self confident, supremely infla- unflappable under pressure. So I think those are skills you can develop. And I think I could have developed them. But I could only have developed them if I was highly motivated to spend a bunch of my time and effort working on it seriously. Um, it's 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 you know when I was a kid there were these public service ads from GI Joe, you know, and and everyone would end with like the kids would would realize what they did wrong, and GI Joe would say, "Well, now you know," and knowing is half the battle, and the point is knowing is only half the battle. It's it's you know I know a lot of stuff. I know enough to know that if I spent you know, six to eighteen months really working on my mental game, it might improve. But now, as I am a forty-seven years old, I, I run recreationally. I'm not motivated. You know, if I have an amount of time, I would rather spend that time going out and running. And probably the lowest hanging fruit for me to improve my performance would be to run more because I don't run mm-hmm. that much. You know, I don't run as, as as much as I used to. So the mental game would have been relevant to me when I was twenty-one, and all I cared about was running faster, and I was willing to do anything to run faster. But, but yeah, just the knowledge in itself, I think it's something. It's not, it's not nothing to, 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 to reach a, a critical point in a race or in a hike or whatever the case may be and to, to be able to tell yourself, I know it feels like you're about to die, but you're not. You're just really tired. That, that is something. I, I think it's helpful, but it's not transformative uh, You know, in, in, the, in the way that you might hope that you're going you know, to... In the way that it would have been nice to be able to put on my book you know, on the cover, you will get 8% faster just by implementing these three nifty mental tricks.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not that book. It's not, but, um, it
1: would have been great. I could have sold a lot, but yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: But I think, I think the, the, what you've given people, Alex, is we're only talking about performances in races, 5ks, 10ks, riding your bike, whatever it may be. but, Having the knowledge that when that warning light comes on on your instrument panel, that you can ignore it, and may allow somebody to get themselves out of a survival situation, for example, where they have to walk seventy kilometers out of the bush with a broken leg, and they think back to Alex Hutchinson's book Enduring, and go, you know what? I read about people who've done this. I've read about Henry Worsley, who, who basically dragged him, his dying body of Antarctica, and uh, I mean. So so even though I think you think it's not that important, I think just that knowledge is critical to people who are maybe what we say on the rivet or a guy coming down the north ridge of Everest or knowing that, you know what, warning lights on, all my warning lights are on, but I'm going to ignore it and keep on moving. And I think that could be something that, I mean, you'll never know this. Nobody's going to... Um, well, maybe they will. Maybe they will contact you and say, "Hey, you kept me alive." So I think it's a it's a critical thing to know that our bodies can handle far more than what our central governor system thinks we can. Our, our brain that's that's dialing it back.
1: That that's great to hear, and I and I hope that's true. Yeah. And, I, and I think one thing I'll just emphasize is I I hope that my book has been part has been one part of a larger conversation. Um, like I don't want to claim credit for like inventing this stuff. I'm, 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 I was writing about what a, a whole bunch of researchers had been trying to, you know, hashing out over 10 or 15 years and, and other journalists like Matt Fitzgerald, who's written a book, who, who wrote a book called, uh, uh, how bad do you want it? And, and I've have, have written about this. And it so to me, as I was writing about this stuff over the course of the 2010s, it felt like, you know, not just because of me, it felt like it moved in it, this, these sorts of ideas moved into a sort of more mainstream conversation. And so, I, 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 th- I hope and think you're you're right that 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 knowledge can 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 make a difference for people, and that it's been cool to see that research, which was sort of, uh, it's not something that was we talked about in the '90s. It's not something that we took seriously, and I think that's different for for people today who are pushing their limits, there's there's much more recognition of that. And uh, yeah, the knowledge, the knowledge makes a difference even if the, we don't have the sort of three easy steps to-, to make yeah, And sure I like
2: that. I like the fact that you're not trying to distill it down to, to hear the tricks to become a faster marathoner. You're just giving us a whole bunch of, of information and then we can do with it what we want. But we can also, I think, distill it down to the, into, in layman's terms, it means that, hey, I can handle a lot more than I think I can handle.
1: Yeah, that's the one message I hope I hope people take away, and that people take away from. I've always taken away from you know tales of exploration and adventure. It's like it framed in a different way when I'm reading, you know, uh, uh, you know stories like Henry Worsley's or, or other adventures. It's like, yeah, that's that's ultimately what you're learning, I think, in a lot of cases. And, and yeah, then you, so you I mean, t-
0: stories you... of people putting. Go go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Lava. No,
2: Pete. Pete, go ahead. We're having a Canadian standoff. You yeah, go. I
0: mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's um like stories like uh between a rock and a hard place aaron ralston's story uh the andean plane crash uh into thin air um laval's story like the, these stories of people being in, thrust into circumstances that are just so wild and they just if they had been described to them they would they, they would not believe that there was any way that they would come out of that right but so these these are practical examples of people being pushed to a space where they they need to do something right um and uh and and endure and it's really interesting and then some of us choose to go and manufacture these circumstances for ourselves to see kind of what we're made of and uh, like my advice to people is always whatever your thing is so if it's running and you've never run more than a 5k and that was really hard and it was a big goal I say like go four times what you think is hard and then go try and do that, right? Like go run a half marathon and see cuz you could do it. You could do it and people can. They don't they don't know that, right? It's like David Goggins 40% rule. Like you're probably when you think you're done, you've probably done 40% of what
1: you think you can do. I, I totally agree with you, but I still have to laugh because I was I was nodding along and thinking, yeah, cuz he was going to say, yeah, try and go 10% more than what you can do. You you can go an extra ki- no Go four hundred times, or four times, four hundred percent. What what you've done for? Okay, everyone's got different. Um, it's 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 like my my wife and I when we're either of us is coming back from injury. You know, I'll be like, okay, I'm gonna I, today. I'm gonna take three steps. Tomorrow, I'm gonna take four steps. And that's like, a bad injury. Like, yeah, in two years, you'll be running around the block. And <laughs> and then, meanwhile, she'll be like, well, I, I've I've just had my hamstring reattached surgically, so I'm gonna take tomorrow off, and then I'm gonna run a marathon. We, <laughs> we, we have we have. D- different ways of pushing our limits but it but the the, the philosophy is the same that you should you, you you should try and reach beyond what your what your grasp is and i mean i had so i had an interesting i for a, a a project i'm working on i actually i was interested interviewing some cognitive psychologists who study sort of how the brain works how it handles risk and uncertainty and things like that and i, I was asking this one guy about uh, his research but in the end i was like so like do you have any explanation for, like, why do I want to go out into the wilderness and paddle a canoe or carry a a, a backpack or run a marathon or whatever? And one of the things he said stuck with me is like, you know, like, we're not born knowing our limits. The only way, no no one tells you what your limits are. You can only discover your limits by encountering them. Um, and this was, you know, there's a, a comment from a, 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 you know, a computer scientist, not from like an Everest climber, but it was it really stuck with me and 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 that's i I feel like for those of us who are unlikely to get stuck coming down the north side of everest um we're still curious about how will we respond if something it you know if we are called to push to our limits, and so I think a lot of the things we do you can like whether it's running a marathon or or going you know backpacking a hard backpacking trip or something. We're sort of rehearsing. We're saying well, what happens when the going gets tough? What do I do when something goes wrong or some, you know, where, where, when I meet an unexpected challenge? I think that's the key, not just the expected challenges, but the what I something that I wasn't expected. How will I rise to the occasion? And so we're we're trying to discover um yeah, how 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 will respond to that that the, those sort of limits uh rearing their ugly heads.
2: And the limits that we're talking about we're talking about stuff from like there, good, Canadian standoff. Go
0: ahead. Three, three we a, Canadians. We have, a, we have a small delay, I think.
2: Yeah. Um when you we're uh when we context. talk about when we talk about limits, we talk about these iconic things. We're talking about Everest, we're talking about um, you know, into thin air, 127 hours, the guy who cut his own arm off. And but when you think about I mean we're all three Canadians, we think about the history of Canada when the Europeans arrived here and some of the feats of endurance that, for example, a voyageur would leave I'm um, uh, sitting in Montreal and I would leave Montreal and paddle all the way across the prairies into the northeastern corner of of Alberta, spend the winter and paddle back. I mean, these were incredible feats of endurance. The guys that would, uh, I can't remember the Scottish uh, explorer who named the Boothia Peninsula up in Nunavut, but uh, one of his journal entries was, it was in the wintertime, walked 700 miles, shot one moose. That was it. That's all we know about his walk. which today, today would be a Netflix series.
1: Yeah. I mean, those guys, they didn't have Gore-Tex. Like, (laughs) you know, I, whenever I'm out in the back country, it's like, man, this is really hard. I can't believe I'm such a tough guy. I need to get back into my, you know, 200 gram tent and, and, uh, you know, onto my Thermarest, so I can recover from that day. It's like, man i mean and the bugs that they dealt with like yeah it's i i love reading those old explorers so journals so hard um yeah and i think there's something not to not to be too parochial about it but growing up in canada you know i grew up in uh, toronto in a city of four million but there's there's something uh, you know there's something in the national psyche that that uh, remembers those those fur traders and value and sort of values that kind of willingness to go and you know get lost in the wilderness. I, I guess there's just a lot of wilderness around, even if you're in a big city like Toronto, and you feel like you have to know. Well, how would I how would I handle it if I was in that wilderness? What would I do? Would I be able to survive?
2: So since Pete and I are too scared to speak and step over each other, if you were a voyager and you're in Montreal and you're training to paddle across Canada, which would come first, Alex, cardio or weights?
1: (laughs) I'm cursed by that book title. Um, Because... Just for background, for anyone who, who who has somehow not read this fine book that I wrote in 2011, the title was "Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights?" And after the book came out, I did a you know the, a, a round of radio interviews and stuff. And the first question on every interview <laughs> was, "So, which does come first, cardio or weights?" And let me tell you, when you're on like commercial top 40 radio <clears throat> for a you know a 90 One second minute. interview spot, what they don't want to hear is you know, that's a really interesting question. And the, the, the answer really depends on the context. And so it depends on what you're looking for and blah, blah, You know, I, I actually, not to digress too far, I did one interview with a, a radio guy in Chicago. And literally, it was, and, and they warned me, my the publicist warned me, like, I'm not sure you want to do this one. This guy's a bit of like a shock jock kind of wannabe kind of guy. I was like, whatever, I don't care. You know, it'll be fine. Uh, and like, Literally 15 seconds into the first question, he just hung up on me. He was like, this is "Boring," <laughs> and he hung up. <laughs> so, so with that preamble, let me answer your question: Cardio or weights? Um, there, you know, when I wrote that book, that the, the what was interesting to me, and this was basically a, a, a compendium of different uh, of answers to a whole bunch of common questions on exercise, and the, which which should you do first? Question: There was some really interesting research showing that your body basically has kind of two different molecular switches one that you, you get a signal and it's going to signal that your cells build more mitochondria we need more endurance and there's a different signal that is like uh we need stronger muscles build bigger muscle fibers and essentially those two molecular switches conflict you can't have both on at the same time so if you do a big strength workout and then you go for a run your the the endurance Adaptations will be a little bit less because your body's kind of stuck in strength building mode instead of endurance building mode. And this is really cool um, molecular biology. And I wrote a little bit about that. But in the years after that, I've sort of I've come around to the idea that actually that's kind of a bit a red herring. That for most of us, the sort of marginal, it's like, am I gaining 20% or 15% versus am I doing my workout is much more important. So I I've I've come around to the, the way I am now, it's like, do whatever's most convenient in your routine first, what whatever you enjoy or what you know there's other logistical reasons for me, I, I really don't enjoy resistance training. it's just not interesting to me. Uh, and so if I have a certain amount of time to get some exercise in and I say, well I'll do a run first, then I'll do some you know some body weight strength exercises, then it'll just happen that I'll, I'll, I'll use up all my available time running. I just know that's just the way it works. Um, so if I want to force myself to do some strength training, uh, twice a week, what I do is I go, and I start with strength, I go over to, there's a playground near me, which has some body weight stuff. I'll go and do some pull-ups and some dips and, uh, step-ups and box jumps and stuff like that. And then I'll whatever time I have left, I'll use my run. So I'm doing that not because of molecular, you know, biology or optimizing the the adaptive signals. I'm doing that for the lo- logistical reason of, I know I need to do some strength training. So I'm going to force myself to do it before I give myself the dessert of, of going for my run. But, uh, so that's kind of the, yeah, there, there, there is some, and there's a, there's also a more obvious interaction factor, which is that if you do two hard workouts back to back, you're going to have less energy available and motivation for the second workout. So you're unlike, you're unlikely to get quite as much out of yourself, uh, in whatever you do second. So, th- but that argument would be do whatever you care most about first, and then do, do the second most important thing second, but. But I would say that's outweighed by do whatever works in your schedule, in your psychological space or whatever the case may be. And if you're a a a voyager starting in Montreal, yeah, yeah, it was, I didn't come up with the title. I will, I will say, um, it, it, um, it, 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 it provoked questions. Unfortunately, it was a question I was ill-equipped to answer.
0: (laughs) Even having written the book. And I mean, it's context, like where I'm also a middle-aged athlete and I think that that a, fo- a little bit of focus on strength training. There can be a lot of benefits to that for other reasons, not just for uh, marginal gains, right?
1: Yeah, for me, I mean, the reason I'm out there, the reason I, I force myself twice a week to start with strength is not because I want to, you know, win the local turkey trot or whatever. It's it's because I want to be able to get out of my chair in ten years, right? I'm, I'm a exactly. very skinny guy, if- and I know that my running is not helping me build muscle mass, so I need to take matters into my own hands and and you know make sure I'm going to age gracefully by making sure I have a little bit of muscle.
0: Um, yeah, like, uh, Peter Atiyah talks a lot on the drive podcast, which is excellent. And as every year I get older, I get more and more interested in the longevity. It's a coincidence. Um, yeah. uh, but he talks a lot about the marginal decade and he's like, look, if I want to have any muscle when I'm 80, I definitely need to have it now.
1: So exactly. And I, you know, th- this is a podcast, so you can't See me but I I'm, a, I'm I'm a skinny guy and so I'm very if you subtract 10% from me every year for the next 3 decades there's not going to be a whole lot left so, um, yeah I'm, just I'm a beard <laughs> exactly
2: but i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of studies as as you would know more than anybody that grip strength and the ability to stand up is is a real indicator of overall yeah. uh, robust health right
1: yeah and and, and sometimes people misinterpret this so they're like what is it about having strong hands that's so important is that you could still open the spaghetti jar and like, no, no, it's just a, it's just a proxy for, for overall strength and, and mobility and mobility. And yeah, like the, even not just, you know, how, how can you get up, but like how quickly can you get up from a chair or how quickly can you get up from the floor? Um, or it's with not no hands
0: you're... or with one hand and measurements Yeah. Like that, yeah. Right?
1: You can, yeah. you can, you can manipulate the variables and there's, I mean, it's, it's extremely, has extremely good predictive power for you know health span and, and and even lifespan i think
0: but
2: isn't it additionally so because yeah, I, I, isn't it additionally because uh having that that strength allows you to stop yourself from falling and having the you know often the life ending broken pelvis and because you can grab a rail or you can hang onto to a cane uh or or whatever isn't that one of the reasons that grip strength uh upper body strength is important as a as a as an uh, older older than me guys i'm fifty four older than me
1: Yeah, and that's that. The definition of old is always one year older than than whoever you're talking. Exactly. But forty eight year old. Yeah, I mean, there's all these. uh, There's lots of studies of the rate of aging, right? And you can get these nice, beautiful curves of here's how quickly you lose muscle mass. You lose X percent per year, and then in the next decade, you lose X plus one percent or whatever. And the truth is, that's not how individual. That's that's a population average. That's not how individual trajectories go. And for the most part. The individual trajectories, and I'm going to wave my hands here in a way that will be totally useless to anyone listening to this, uh, is a gradual decline. And then you have something that causes you to to be inactive for three weeks or whatever. You you, you go and have your your prostate surgery or whatever. And so you have a big drop and then you get healthy again, but you never go back to where you were on the curve. And then you have another gradual decline. So instead of a semi-steep gradual decline, you have like shallow decline, drop, shallow decline, drop. And so avoiding those steep drops is super important in terms of you, you can beat the curve if you can avoid having a lot of times when you're out of commission for a month or, you know, and people, this can be, um, you know, work life stuff. Like, you know, you've got a, you're an accountant and every April you you have to work for 16 hours a day or whatever for taxis and, or it can be a fall, uh, you know, And and certainly once you get up into your, Late seventies and eighties falls are, um, th- th- I mean, they can be ser- they can obviously be serious in their own right. But they th- but the real key is you you lose even if you recover, you don't go back to where you were. So avoiding those falls is is super important. But also, you know, be, so that's one factor. But I think just more generally, um, it's surprising. There was a nice graph that went around from a researcher that went around on Twitter a year or two ago that just showed typical rates of decline for VO2 max, which is um, you know, a measure of aerobic endurance, and the typical the, um, the, the level required to do things like climb a flight of stairs or you know walk down the street or whatever. And most people hit those thresholds when they're you know, by the time they're in their 70s or 80s, it's like, nah, now going upstairs is really hard. And so you're living in a, an apartment or a house where there's stairs. You just stop going up and down the stairs as much. You don't go up the street to shop, and that creates the sort of uh, the opposite of a virtuous cycle, where you, you're finding things harder, so you do less things. So you're eating less well. You're not getting physical activity, so you decline more quickly. So maintaining that the ability to do activities of daily living without brushing up against your your physical limits—the topic we're talking about. Um, or getting close enough that it gets hard becomes super important. So you, it's not so much that it's not it's not just that you can't get the jar open. It's just that if if things become hard, you start doing them less, and so you, you need to have reserve because ev- all of us are going to lose capacity as as the years go go by, and so you need to have have enough reserve in advance. And that's a, you know honestly like that's a serious concern for me because I'm, I'm I don't have a ton of muscle to spare. And so I feel like I, you know, I'm still very capable and fit and all that stuff. But I still have to remind myself, it's like, what happens if you lose 20% over the next two decades? Um, will you still be able to do the things that are important to you?
0: Yeah, that's it, right? And elongating that period of your life for as long as possible. I guess that's the the end goal. So I think the answer to your, to your 2011 book is both.
1: Both well, you can't do them at the same time. Well, you can, I guess. There are, but the the answer is either. Just make sure you you know far more important than what order you do them in is that you're doing them both. Well put.
0: So another another book that you wrote. Pleasure to have you. Oh sir, we have this little delay. It's driving me nuts. Yeah, I'm gonna. I gotta
2: get. I gotta get a couple more questions in here. Um, Yeah, no. What you what you talk about, Alex? Are these? uh, they are these. no no pun intended. There are these big ideas and endurance, um, uh, cardio or weights. um, And this all started with literally your book, big ideas. So you are always, you have something about you. There's something either wrong with you or extremely right with you, where you are always trying to dig into these questions that we all have. Your big ideas book, in looking back on it from 2023, I'm sure it'd be completely different. but you talk about these these iconic or seminal moments in in the development of technology, etc that are that are um, uh, critical to where we are now. Can you just expand on your book uh, big ideas and, and 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 looking back on it with the benefit of of call it 16 years of hindsight what you've learned?
1: Yeah, wow. You, you went deep into the archives. Almost nobody knows about that book anymore. Um, but Big Ideas was, uh, it grew out of a Popular Mechanics magazine article that I wrote, where they had asked me to identify the 50 most significant inventions of the modern era. And so to do that, I, I contacted people at, you know, history of like academics studying the history of science and technology and people at science museums and all sorts of, I, got, I assembled this big panel from all over the world said what are the inventions that really changed our our world and i ended up defining the modern era as since the transistor in 1947 um and and then the article was fun and i had a ton of research so then we expanded it into a book let's forget 50 let's do 100 and make it a book Mm -hmm. um and so that was really interesting because it you know the the it's not just like which inventions made the most money it's like which ones changed the way we live like which were the ones that That uh, that really had an an impact, and also, you know, I I was also interested. You know, which are the ones that represented a real like moment of innovation, as opposed to just like, you know, it's like whoever invented the iPhone twelve was not doing anything really different from the iPhone eleven, right? Like this, you you Mm -hmm. know, what's happening, and, and there's a big change. And it was amazing to me how hard it was to find inventions that that represented that sort of eureka moment probably the best example i could think of or i could find was the 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 modern photocopier which was basically one guy came up with this idea and there were multiple steps in the technology like the invention of toner and then how do you image it and how do you make the toner stick that had to be solved independently it wasn't just one idea so i think it took him from the time when he wrote down his idea on a piece of paper to the time when he patented and I think sold it to Xerox, you know, it was over a decade. It was, it was in the thirties and forties. Uh, and that's like one of the few examples I could come up with where it's like, if that guy wasn't there at that time, who knows how long it would have been before a comparable, comparable invention happened. Whereas for most of the others, it's like, yeah, this guy did it. He made the first transistor. And if he hadn't done it, there was a guy in Japan who would have done it two months later um, that, 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 you know ideas are floating in the air and someone plucks them out but uh so i i I love the photocopier example because it was an example of the sort of eccentric lone genius working on a second floor in a a second floor apartment while his wife supported him uh to to uh or something like you know i can't remember the full details Mm -hmm. but um it was the example of the lone genius but he's kind of the exception that proves the rule which is that most of the progress we get it's it's uh It's society moving forward and a whole bunch of people Mm -hmm. contributing a little bit incrementally that that then produces one of these moments that change us.
2: So looking back from 2023 on that book, a lot of things have changed. AI, for example. I know you've written about that. But um, what would you add to the book now?
1: Wow. that's uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, the, the funny thing is, I I feel like if I went back and looked at the book right now, and it's been a while since I looked at the book, the worst choices I would have made, the worst things I would have put, the, the, the most debatable choices would have been the most recent ones. Because it's very, very hard to, mm-hmm. to, to see at close range what's most significant. I mean, I can't remember if I, like, when I think about how my life has changed in the last 20 years, like, the first thing that pops down to me is, like, search engines. Like some the, the the algorithms for like Google. I mean, I put in 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 my book. I put in stuff like uh, both the internet and the World Wide Web. So like the uh, those things obviously changed. Uh, I mean, I put in GPS, but some of these things had a long simmer time, right? Like GPS was oh, developed, yeah. I think, in the seventies, Um, and, and then it was military, you know, controlled until the mid nineties. But now, but, and then it was accessible after the mid nineties. Like I had a Garmin unit in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. but the transition from like, yes, you can buy a GPS device to now almost all of us carry a device at all times that tells us exactly where we are. And that's been a real, like, I, I notice now it's like, I, I, I'm in, a, in my house. It's like, if I go downstairs without my phone, I'm like, oh, I left my phone upstairs. I
2: know it's like, so strange.
1: That level of dependence is scary, <clears throat> but but it's so the, the the persistent geolocation, or pervasive rather geolocation, maybe that's something that I would say has has changed changed our lives in ways that um, are still to be determined. Not not always for the better, I don't think.
2: Time to update that book.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could double the number of copies sold from from five to ten. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, well you, you know one thing 400% you hundred percent at least <laughs> <laughs> five to ten That's right. What, uh, what you
2: you mentioned the Sony Walkman in it, and you are wearing earbuds, and that probably came from the Sony Walkman, the development of that. I mean, we all now, if you're when I'm running the city, I I, when I'm running trails, I, I never listen to music or podcasts, but when I'm running in the city, I always have my earphones in. But I do remember walking with that yellow Sony Walkman that you'd snap a tape into, and it also had the AM FM, uh, was it AM FM? Yeah, AM FM radio on it. That thing was, uh, was a life changer.
1: You know what's funny is I, so I I'm I'm inflicting on my kids I'm, I'm we're I'm reading to them my favorite childhood books um which um, the series we're reading right now is the Gordon Corman books which I grew up on. And we have a, I have a, a box set of the of these seven books about Bruno and Boots which is Gordon Corman's character that was updated I don't know like 10 15 years ago and they've made they've they've updated the text in ways that will make it more accessible to m- modern kids so and you can see because they did it uh, on the cheap you can see the font changes when they've made changes and so it's really amusing to me to see the way the things they've felt necessary to update and and the fact that since it was updated 15 years ago it's already dated so there's a book that I the Gordon Corman book that I just read where it's like in the original book in written in the early 80s it's like the guy always has his AMFM transistor radio that he's always listening to. And they've made it modern that now the guy carries around his disc man. And my kids don't even know what a compact disc oh, yeah. is. And it's like so now it's now it's modern, mm-hmm. but it's it, that's how fast technology changes. They 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 try, you know, they they have to update the books every five years if they want them to feel current to kids.
0: I I think the search engine point is that's the biggest change that I can think of in 20 years. Absolutely. You're in a bar with your friends and you're having an argument about when the Godfather came out and nobody <laughs> solves the the debate, right? It just ended 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and now we, we know the answer within five seconds, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and so, that you know, I mean, obviously, AI is going to be interesting to see how, where, where all that goes. But the, the search engine itself, I mean, as a journalist, look, like,
2: oh, geez, I,
1: I started as a journalist Can't in 2005. Imagine it's it's hard for me to imagine how anyone could have done my job without the accumulated knowledge of of civilization just at my fingers it's like simple dates you know yeah. random facts you, what do you do you like you go to the library and you, you read an entire text just to find out like when the battle of the boyne was or whatever like you know i it's it, I, I, I guess I just can't conceive of it because I never, I never lived in that previous world, but I did, I did live as a, you know, as a student in the pre, in the pre-Google world. And, and, uh, Well, yeah, just it, traveling, I,
2: it, just traveling was crazy. Remember we used to, I, I don't know if you guys are old enough, but when I started backpacking around the world and stuff as a, as a, uh, in my early twenties, you had lonely planet guidebooks and there was no such thing as the internet. You carry this, this tome around with you. And that was your ticket to, to, to function in the country that you're in and then you couldn't call your parents. You had to go to, I remember like I've traveled in Papua in the Indonesian part of Papua New Guinea and you'd be, you'd have to go to a post office and find a telephone and pay for it. And you'd get this scratchy line and tell your mom you're still alive. And then you'd grab your Lonely Planet book and try and find a connection in the little village that you're in. And it was just, I don't know how, like, I don't know how we did it, but we did it.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I, I, we're, we're going to renovate soon. And so I need to get rid of a whole bunch of stuff. And now that you've said that, it's like, Oh, that's something I can get rid of. I have a shelf full of lonely planet and rough guides to, yeah. to, to various places that I went to like 20 plus years ago. And uh, I mean, it's yeah. So then everyone's going to the same restaurant because everyone, you know, there's only one guidebook to this town. And that's so right. all the backpackers are like, well, I need to go to this place. Cause it's the. So it was terrible in a way, but like, I think about now, you know, I, I did a I did a, a backpacking trip last summer in Newfoundland, which was pretty cool. And it's like, no matter how remote the trip you, well, okay, not quite there, but within certain limits, no matter how remote the trip you do is, someone has put up a travel blog about it, and probably ten people have, and it has pictures. And so it's like, now, I'm I'm not going to get halfway through that trip and realize, oh my god, I needed to bring crampons because now I know. But I'm also not going to get halfway through that trip and discover, turn a corner and see like an amazing waterfall hidden around the corner because someone, like, I already knew about it. So I know, I know. There, it kind it of sounds. takes away from it though. There's there's definitely something lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, mean, I was doing due-
0: add, it's additive oh, yeah. and subtractive at the same time. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Cause another, you can look, I mean, I could look on Strava and there'd be segments all over think <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> right?
2: Yeah. You think time, you're, kind, you're cutting a new stuff. trail. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I mean, look, a lot. Some of these trips I wouldn't have gone on. I wouldn't have the courage to go on if I if I didn't have the paths of of others mm-hmm. to follow. And you know, I'm the kind of guy who, if I'm dropping my kid off at a birthday party across town, I'm like using Google Earth to try and figure out where the entry to the parking lot is so that I won't miss it on off the highway and have to like. Mm-hmm. So I'm. It's not that I don't value the ability to get information um, in advance, and I do it probably obsessively, but. That I mean, this is in a sense what pushes me farther into the backcountry. I need to go someplace where I can't find all the information in advance, where I don't know what it's going to be like around that next corner.
2: So as we're wrapping up here, let's talk about what you've got next planned. Uh, either backcountry stuff, maybe you've got a top secret book that you can tell us, we won't tell anybody about. What, what else do you have? Uh, what's on your front burner right
1: now? So... Front burner and the reason some of the stuff that we've been talking about today, uh, you know, is, is right in the wheelhouse of, I'm writing a book on exploring um, okay. basically why do we explore like the, the why question, what, what, what is it that causes us to seek out the unknown um, when the known is available um, and it's, it's turning out to, as I, as I sort of, as, as we discussed, it's, it's harder to put your finger on that than I anticipated. And the book was actually supposed to be due Um four months ago and i'm not not even close to being done because i'm just finding it like that you, you can't just sort of look even with google or even with chat gpt you can't just look at uh-huh. the answer so i i'm i'm having trouble putting my finger on what exactly what we were talking about earlier like what is it that pushes us out there why do we want to do this so you just that's, sold the, that's two the books per- yep yeah, yeah well let's hope let's hope
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i'm like i'm gonna be all over that book and i know laval will be too
1: fantastic I'm, I'm, I'm well on my way to quadrupling my my goal <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so, th- so that that's the professional thing uh th- this summer um i'm gonna uh paddle the the river which is a, a a classic one in northern ontario that it leads all the way to to james bay I'm not, we're not going to get that far because we don't have enough time and i'm uh, gonna do a little with the family we're gonna do a little hut to hut hiking in in uh, austria in the alps so
2: wow sounds like a great summer
1: so i'm not going to get a lot done on 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 the book but uh but i'm very much looking forward to, to both those trips
0: well this has been great go ahead pete good for you <laughs> thank you for doing this alex like what a pleasure um i've been f- reading your stuff consuming the content that you've been putting out for a long time laval has obviously done an incredible deep dive and is also a big fan um it's right in our wheelhouse. So, so interesting. And we just really appreciate you making the time to do it with us.
1: Well, it's been a, a super fun conversation. I'm delighted that uh, big ideas still lives on in at least one mind. So uh, that, that's a, uh, that was a super, uh, super surprise question. I appreciate that, but yeah, no, t- ton of fun. Really nice to, to, to talk with you guys and, uh, and to, to chat with kindred spirits. Alex, if you um, able to come we'd... back
0: out to Calgary, hopefully with them. Um... With the benefit of a little more time, let us know and we'll uh, we'll get you out for a run in the River Valley here or something.
1: That would be awesome. I, I
2: or better yet, better yet in the mountains. Yeah, we hope to have you on again. And I want to close out by uh, by reading a quote to you. You probably figure out who it is. But uh, they teach you there's a boundary line to music, but man, there's no boundary line to art. Charlie Parker. And uh, he's a famous alto sax player, <laughs> as you know and uh i think it's a perfect way to say that you are virtuoso at sharing information um you give us so many new ideas and uh, it's been just a real joy to follow you over the years and uh, to speak to you today so thank you very much
1: thanks guys i appreciate it
0: thanks everybody for listening we look forward to bringing you more conversations very soon Another very heartfelt thank you from both Laval and I to Alex for uh, making the time to speak with us. It felt like like three old friends catching up. Uh, what an awesome, awesome storyteller and conversationalist. Huge honor. Hope we get to meet uh, you in person soon, Alex, and uh, maybe go for a run. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate you carving out the time to do so. If you're able to give us a positive rating or review on where, whatever podcast platform you're finding the show or on social media that helps us reach new people who might be inspired to uh, join our listenership. So thanks so much for being part of our community and we'll be back soon.